couple of things. I, last week, um, if you were here, I, I talked about this story of this uh, ship called the Terror that was trying to find the Northwest Passage through the Arctic. I used it as an illustration of not godly wisdom, but worldly wisdom. And it's interesting. I had someone come up to me after service, and they had a relative who was on the Terror. So it's such a small world that you would talk about something like that, and someone's like, yeah, one of my relatives is actually on, on that ship. And they ended up, you know, stuck in the Arctic the rest of their life. Also, on the other thing, when I talked about pickles last week, my wife sent me a text in the middle of second service, and she said, hey, bring me over a hamburger with super happy pickles. <laughs> so if you are someone who has sent me a pickle text this week, there you go. Yeah, she's on your team. <laughs> Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside on the left, you're going to get a half-page recap of what we talk about today. On the right-hand side, you'll get some questions to talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about, to reflect and go deeper in what we talk about today. On the back, you get the verses we're covering. On the bottom, you get a place for notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in version. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And this is James chapter 4 verse 6 and it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, today we ask that you would teach us what it means to truly be a humble people. That as we look through all the things that James has said thus far, we would realize that our lives bowed into surrender to you, realizing that all that you have done to bring us to yourself would lead us to that place of humility. And that we are lifted up by the goodness and the grace of who you are. And we would live in humility and grace for our entire lives, focused upon who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are in week 13 of the book of James. Today we are going to hit chapter 4. And if you haven't seen how this has gone so far, we spent eight weeks in chapter 1. We spent two weeks in chapter 2, two weeks in chapter 3. We will spend two weeks in chapter 4 and then five weeks in chapter 5. So it's, it's 19 weeks long. But I do got to tell you, I have so many notes. This is doing really well that I'm going through it as fast as I am because I could have made it twice as long. Could have been like other books we go through. Anyway, uh, James is writing to Jewish Christians that have been dispersed throughout the known world at the time. There's a lot of persecution that has happened to them, but James is also speaking about how a lot of the things that happened to them happened because of things that they did. Like there are some things going on in their churches that are not good, and it's because of responses that they have made within their own churches. And so the words that here we'll use today will move us back to the place of understanding wisdom from below versus wisdom from above, and then walking into understanding what grace is in our lives. Now, as we talked about, when we operate in wisdom that is not the wisdom God calls us to, we start to look at things around us for what our wisdom should be. And that means our culture starts to dictate what we do. And James calls this earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. He pulls no punches with that. And when we have wisdom from below, we become very selfish. We refuse to sacrifice for one another. If our own happiness becomes the center of our lives and what we want, we will start to look at God and say, this is what God is supposed to do to make me happy. And if God doesn't make me happy, well, there's a problem with God. It's not a problem with me. 
When things come into our lives where there's hardship or suffering, we start to skew all of that to make it self-focused and not learn from what God wants us to learn as we go through those hard things. We will have no patience or commitment because if we start to see this life as all that there is, well, that is earthly wisdom. That's why James calls it earthly. It's from below in nature. And what tends to happen is when we live in the earthly wisdom is we start to get bitter and jealous. James will say we live in selfish ambition. We don't love the wisdom God tries to give us, and we try to make our faith all about ourselves and our own happiness. And this is why today a lot of people in our world are consistently bitter and jealous and frustrated and angry, because there is no other way to live your life if your life is focused solely upon you. One writer says it like this, when you're the point, you're miserable. And it's true. And it leads to bitterness. And that bitterness will lead to issues within a church family. So give me a little bit of latitude today because I don't have a three-point sermon. What we're going to essentially do is take what James has talked about and we're going to talk about grace. And James will contrast some things today so we understand what grace is and how to walk in it better. James chapter 4 verse 1, if you want to open there, that is on page 655 if you have an element Bible. And James is going to start painful. It is painful, but it's also honest. James 4 verse 1 starts like this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He says you're fighting with other people so much because it's all about your own passions. It's about what you want and not what God desires. You're losing sight of what true life is meant to be. God tells us when we surrender to Christ, that's when we gain. And as we talked about last week, what we see is that there's three primary ways that we grow in wisdom. The first one of those is the scriptures. We, the scriptures are all about Jesus. Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees in the scriptures. He rebukes them because they knew all about the scriptures, but they refused to see where the scriptures led, which is to Christ himself. That means the Bible is not a newspaper. You don't pick it up and just read it to find information. You want it to actually read you. We want to see what the good news is, and then we want our lives to respond to it. So one of the ways we start to walk in wisdom is through the scriptures. The next way is through the community of the church. This is one of the reasons that we at Element try to connect you guys in gospel communities. And as we've talked about before, no gospel community is perfect. No gospel community has it all together. There are issues in all of them, but we want to be a people who walk alongside one another, that remind one another of what the gospel is and what it means to truly trust Christ in the midst of it. That doesn't mean you can't have friends outside the church or your gospel community, but it means that we want to be a people who have those around us who are walking the journey with us. And the third way we walk in wisdom is we want to connect ourselves to those who are further along than us in faith and life. Because there are people around us who, as we gather together, you will see that they've followed Christ longer than we have. They've bled more than we have. They've experienced more than we have. They've submitted more wholeheartedly. And this is one of the reasons why we want gospel communities to be full of people who are all different age brackets. Like, if you're older, you need those younger people to teach you how to use your computer and to lighten up a little bit. And, and if you're younger, you need those older people to help you to settle down and not just react to everything that happens around you. We want to ask other people for guidance in humility that we would listen to each other. That's what the church is meant to do, and that helps us to walk into wisdom. But the problem in the American church today is that we value our individuality more than we value the community that God calls us to. And community has always been important, but it's also always been hard. 
And you will see this in how James talks to this church. Sometimes people say, we just need to go back to where the early church lived like and be like them. Well, there's some good things in that and some bad things in that. And what you see here is these Jewish Christian congregations that James is writing to, they are shot through with strife. And they were experiencing class conflicts. You had the gold-fingered James Bond villain rich man, and you had the poor man. You had rival teachers grasping at power. You had people falling prey to envy with one another. Some people would praise God in the church, and then they would go outside the church, and they would curse their brothers. A couple years ago, I'm driving my car. I'm on Broadway, making a left-hand turn onto Broadway. Had a green light, not a turn signal, but both of us had green lights on their side of me. He's turning right. I'm turning left. Three lanes. I pull in the left lane like a nice person should. Apparently, this guy wanted to go across all three lanes and get in my lane, and he gets a honk, and he rolls down his window, and he starts swearing at me and flipping me off. Element sticker on the back of the car. Go element. Way to go, guys. <laughs> Way to go. And I'm just going, look, I know I'm a bad driver, and I probably deserve to be yelled at, at many times when I drive, but okay. Anyway, the literal root meaning of fights and quarrels, it has this idea of wars with one another. And that conveys the reality of the situation in a lot of churches and James's churches. And so James asks and answers his own question as he has multiple times. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? You know, it's, it's not that guy who pulled into my lane. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It is that everyone is looking out for their own good and not what Christ calls us to. Not looking out for our brothers and sisters as well, this community that we are now a part of. I get this thing called Church Tax and Law. It's a newsletter that comes out. And they, in this tax and law thing, talk about different things all over the country. And one of them, apparently, there was a church back east having a business meeting. And it broke out into a brawl where the cops had to come and break it apart. Holy moly, right? Uh, I read this story about this guy whose little girl was in the backyard with their friends and they're screaming at each other and he runs out he's all, what's wrong? And she, she goes, nothing dad, we're just playing church. Yeah, it's got to hurt, right? Now, that's not element. I pray it'll never be element. But too often, if we're honest, if we're honest, we are concerned many times more about our own desires than what God calls us to. And so James speaks in a way that says, our heart's loves, they are disordered. Augustine will later pick this up and borrow from James when he says, if you love God, you can do whatever you please. Because when you love God first, when his kingdom comes first in your life, well, the rest of your life will be dictated by that. So James goes on, he says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. That is not wisdom from above, by the way. Many commentators do not think that James is using a metaphor that this actually happened in one of the churches. So ouch. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, do we follow Jesus or are we following our own passions? Most of the time, uh, then we have some new people that show up to Element. They're late 20s, early 30s, and a lot of them have been through certain things in their life. Uh, they probably grew up in a Christian church most often, but now they have kids and they want to come back and say, I want something in my family's life. And a lot of these people, they grew up and they were all in when they're kids. It's like they learned the VeggieTales songs. I don't even know a VeggieTales song, but then I didn't grow up in the church. Um, but you know the VeggieTales songs, I mean, it's like they didn't go see rated R movies, unless it's that one about where Jesus died. 
Uh, they didn't listen to secular music. They only listened to sometimes really bad Christian music. Uh, they didn't cuss or drink or go to parties. And at some point what happened is God did not give them something they thought that they wanted. A certain college, a relationship to work out. Maybe their parents got divorced. And they said, well, God must not be real. Forget you, God. And the reality is that they really never really met or knew Jesus. They had a Christian culture Jesus where you do these things and then God's supposed to give you these things. They thought that doing the right thing would put God in your debt, but God is never in our debt. We don't have anything that wasn't his to begin with. And what I or the staff or gospel community leaders get to do is we start to help people hopefully get over their church PTSD a bit and we get to tell them that you are actually invited into God's family. You get to, and, and sometimes in family, it's not hard, but we have a dad who loves us and disciplines and, and he grows us. And they begin to see, hopefully, what the good news brings. And what happens is when we get frustrated, we will start to focus inward. And then that uh, focused inward frustration goes to people outside of us. And eventually that frustration will go to God himself. You see this happen all the time. And so this is why I think James writes the words that he does. Because he goes on verse 4 and says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So let me explain what this means in that context. Adulterous would be like you promise breakers. We've made all these promises to God and we break them. I can be honest and tell you that there are times I broke my promises to God when I said, God, I won't act like this. And then I act like that, even sometimes in front of you. So I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but sometimes we'll make promises to God with no intention of even following through when we're making those promises. And so when James talks about friendship this way, it can be confusing in our culture because his culture is completely different than ours. So in his day, each of these churches, they would have all lived in the same town. They would have most likely known one another. Uh, you would probably have a job that your dad or your mom had and their dad or mom had and their dad or mom had just kind of went through the lines. And one side, that's a really good thing because you are known by people. They've known who you are, but it's a really bad thing on the other side where if your great granddaddy did something dumb, that stigma could follow you your entire life. And it's not like us where today you can live in a neighborhood for like three or four years and never even meet your neighbors. Friendship in the first century had a different connotation and meaning. And so it would be restricted to who was involved in that in these deep ways. Like today, we have Facebook friends and you have like some of you have like 500 plus Facebook friends. You think, these are all my friends. They're not really your friends. You don't really know them that well. They're not your friends. Jesus had 500 people he talked to. He had 72 that he sent out. He had 12. And even in that 12, he had three that he was most intimate with, different levels of intimacy. Friendships in this culture and in ours as well should be there to critique and to mold us. And James is saying that these people who are becoming entitled or contemptuous towards God, they have removed their friendship away from Jesus and they have given it to something else to mold them and shape them. Instead of saying to God, you shape me and you mold me, they're saying to something else. I want this to shape me. I want you to mold me. I want you to critique my life and tell me how I'm supposed to live. And honestly, we all do it. Every single one of us. Whether it's some political people you follow or social media influencers you like or a commercial that tells you what you have to have or your house has to look like, what your car has to look like. We all do it. We all give our affections to something other than Christ. And we say, I want you to mold me. I want you to critique me. I want you to tell me how I am supposed to live. And this, James says, is an horrific assault on the mercy and beauty of God. And we have all done it. 
every single one of us. But this is the beauty of grace. And this is why you get to one of my most favorite lines in the entire book, verses 5 and 6. He says, Or do you suppose is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Why does he give more grace? Because we need it. Because we need it. Exactly. Because we are a people who keep giving our affections to everything else around us other than Christ. We need God's grace. We need his affection. We need his love. We need his jealousy to yearn over us. And I freely admit that there's a lot of people who do not understand when we talk about the jealousy of God. Because we think that God is jealous of something that we have and he's not. Our jealousy is out of fear and insecurity. But that's not God. The idea of God being a jealous God is so confusing that Oprah Winfrey says, that is the reason she is not a Christian. And if some of you are like, Oprah, Oprah's a Christian. Oprah said she's not a Christian. She said she's sitting in a, a Christian church in New York City. And the pastor is talking about jealousy, how God is a jealous God. And she thinks to herself, well, if God is jealous of me, then he can't be God. And either the preacher did a really bad job explaining it, or Oprah took terrible notes, or it could have been a combination of both. I don't know. But they totally missed the point. God is not jealous about you. He's not jealous about the things that you have. He is jealous for you. And for his own glory. God's jealousy is not built around, oh, look what they have. I want those things. His jealousy is built around, I put my spirit there. And my glory and their joy is at stake. God is jealous for you to have the life as his image bearer in the world that he created you to have. His jealousy stems from his love for his own name and the hope that our joy in that name might reflect more perfectly his goodness and his grace. John Piper says it like this, God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife, a queen. His jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. God is jealous for the spirit that he gave us. God is jealous for us to experience the fullest joy possible that he intends for us to live in. And that will only become manifest in us by knowing and loving and following him. What is God's response to our adultery? He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We always need more grace. Now, when I was writing this message, we were going through the book of Job last year, and all kinds of terrible things happened to Job, and people were asking questions about Job's suffering because it borders on evil. And what you see in the end of it, though, is that God still brought good to Job. God brings good to Job's wife and Job's friends. They all became humbled. And after 3,000 years, people found hope and solace in that book. In the end, the worst thing that happened to Job in that book ended up from an eternal perspective being grace. God brings more grace. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher in the Victorian age, and he says, after a service, a lady comes up to him and she says, I pray for you every day that you be kept humble. It's so nice when someone says that to a preacher, by the way. A lot of times we need it. Uh, and so he says, though, she was barely wonderfully dressed. And so he says, thank you, but you remind me of a failure in my duty. I have never prayed for you that you might be kept humble. And so she says, it's Charles Spurgeon, she says to him, there is no such need, for I am not tempted to be proud. <laughs> so he writes this, how proud she was to obtain such a delusion. And that is every single one of us. Because we will say, oh, I've never committed spiritual adultery with God. I've, I've never done it. This is why we need more grace. How proud we are. 
to have such a delusion. And so James is now going to walk us through what it means to really understand that grace. And so this is where he contrasts some things. He does this much better than I could. So starting in verse 7, he says then, Submit yourselves there, therefore before the... Uh, there, uh, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, the beginning of this doesn't sound great in our culture, right? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. We don't like the word submit in anything. Uh, leadership summits, no one talks about submitting. There's no college courses on submitting. If we were to rewrite this, we'd say, assert yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. But that is not the message of the scriptures. It is not. The language of grace can be so grating to so many people because the truth is none of us becomes a Christian without submission to Christ. We didn't find Jesus. We were the ones who were lost. He's the one who comes and he finds us. And this is why so many people love to ridicule Christianity because they say it's for the broken. And you know what? It is. It is. It's for the broken. For the low from chapter one that James talks about, that's who it's for. Those who understand their state. And some people, when you understand your broken state, they say, I can't understand why God would use me or love me. It's grace. It is grace. James is calling us back to this initial submissiveness. Now, we've added words to, in the Greek to this because really it's very clipped when James talks about this. And so we've added words to kind of round it out. But really he is going and putting together negative and positive couplets so that we would be hammered with it and it would excite us and would help us to see the grace of God. So this is how he does it. He says, resist, come near. So the negative is that resist. Now, why is that a negative? Because it's a military term. It's a military term that means to stand against as in combat. In Ephesians 6, Paul will use the metaphor of the armor of God. He will say, Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This means it's not just a physical struggle. It's also a spiritual struggle. It's more than flesh. But that word for struggle, it suggests hand-to-hand combat. Do you ever, in the midst of the culture in which we are, feel like you are always fighting, you're always frustrated, ugh? That's why it's the negative, because we always feel like we're fighting, but we have tools. We have truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation in the Word of God. Those are available to us as we resist, but what's the positive? The positive is this, we get to draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Kent Hughes says this, there are two views which the Christian ought to cultivate with all that he has, the devil's back and the face of God. We get to be a people who look at God's face, what he intends for us as a people to live and walk in. And this is James's point as a positive. You resist, but that's not why you, just, you resist because you come near, because you see who God is. You draw near to him in grace. Ephesians, 6, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What's the best way to do that, to walk in relationship with God? Prayer. Communication with Him. James chapter 1, verse 5 told us this. As a matter of fact, this is what the soldier in Paul's spiritual armor does. Every piece in place, you're in the thick of it, the battle is going on. We fall to our knees, Ephesians 6, 18, and pray in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers. Resist come near. And then he goes into wash and purify. Wash, 
purify. Now, the washing is, you know, we've got a lot of sin and garbage in our lives, and God is the one that purifies us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is a response to what God has done in our life, that our outer and our inner life would start to become one. Uh, commentators note that James is bitingly aggressive when he writes this. How do we know that? Because up until now, he has called them brothers and sisters. And now what he calls them is sinners and double-minded. So those are fighting words. And it goes back to the adultery comment made earlier. This is a double-mindedness of where our heart lies. This is when we say, oh, I love Jesus, but our life looks completely different than someone who would actually love Jesus. It's double-mindedness. And James says spiritually this is an impossibility because either you're God's or you're not. And this is why kind of James keeps asking this question, do we really believe what we say we believe? Do we believe it? And do we walk in it? Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, referring to God and comfort and money, he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, and he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, in the early part of the 20th century, there's this gangster, his name was Mickey Cohen. Anybody heard of Mickey Cohen? There's some movies about him. Okay, a couple of you guys. Okay. Uh, Mickey Cohen was arrested at some point and, and he was jailed. And so there's a lot of Christian leaders who do what they do today. They say, oh, that's someone famous. If that famous person would follow Jesus, oh, that'd be a great testimony and witness. And so all these preachers start going to the jail and start meeting with Mickey Cohen and saying, oh, you need to trust Jesus. And he does make a profession of faith. But as the months pass, it's very evident he did not leave his life of crime at all. And when they asked him about it, he said, well, there's Christian football players and there's Christian cowboy player, or cowboys and there's Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? That's his response, right? And now, why can't there be a Christian gangster? And it's, and it's really important when you point it out this way, right? Because uh, there can't be Christian meth dealers. Okay? Sometimes we throw the word Christian on things to try and make it acceptable. Oh, this is a Christian movie. This is a Christian music. This is Christian this. We throw these modifiers on it. But what James is saying, you're double-minded. Either you're sold out to God or you're not. This is the wash and purify. When it's an extreme, when you talk about like a Christian meth dealer or a Christian gangster, it's like, oh yeah. But we all are double-minded in certain ways in our lives. And this is why James says, resist, come near, wash, purify. How are we purified? By the grace of God. This is why we need more grace. You guys are going to get it. So he, then he goes into the next one, which is grieve and change. Grieve and change. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, I, before I talk about this, I want you to understand something. That Christianity is preeminently geared towards joy. I know that sometimes you don't see that in the world with people who are Christians, but it really is. The Bible is a joyous book. Proverbs 17:22. a cheerful heart is good medicine. Despite this truth, there are some Christians throughout the ages who have taken this verse out of context and they've called for Christians to just live a life of groom. Oh, grieve and change. Some people will say that Jesus never laughed in the scriptures. And if you read how Jesus said certain things, he had a fantastic sense of humor. But they say, Jesus never laughed, so you're not allowed to laugh. Charles Spurgeon, who struggled with anxiety and depression, was someone who said laughter is a great medicine for those things that he went through. And he said, some men appear to have a white crabbit twisted around their souls. Their manhood is throttled with that starched rag. I mean, I wouldn't say it that way, but Charles Spurgeon does. We should be marked by joy. And where gloom is not a Christian characteristic, mourning over our sin is. And this is what James is talking about when he says grieve. 
grieve. It's a recognition that we have failed, that we have fallen into sin, that we have been people who have been adulterous with God. But that doesn't have to destroy us because we get more grace. And what he's saying is don't gloss over it in your life. When you see it, let that be something that humbles you to realize you don't have everything together and that's okay. You can be devastated by it, but don't live in that devastation. Live in the joy and the hope that God brings in His grace. And grieve is a perfect expression of what this means. Mourn expresses inner grief. Weeping is what people would do at funerals. And so he has this, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is a denunciation of Christians who are so insensitive and so superficial that they are laughing when they ought to be weeping over their sin. And sometimes they're weeping when they should be laughing. How about this? When something terrible befalls someone you don't like, are you happy about it or do you pray for them? And last verse about, oh, I would pray for them. Okay, let's talk about politics for a second. There are a lot of people today with the last two presidents we, presidents we have who have been very polarizing. And so you get someone, so Joe Biden's there, and if you don't like Joe Biden, you know, every time Joe Biden fails to look at the teleprompter, he says something really crazy and weird, and you're like, oh my goodness. And everyone's like, ah, ha, ha, look at that guy, he's so stupid, he's so old, he's going to die tomorrow. Oh, they're going to prop him up like, with that movie, uh, what's that movie where they... Wicked of Bernie's, that's going to be Joe Biden. And I've heard people say it and do it. You know what you should do instead? You should pray for that guy. Because only Jesus is going to change the world. Only Jesus, if you like, this guy is, only Jesus is going to change his heart. You go back to Trump, the people who hated Trump. And the guy, I mean, stay away from Twitter. Dude, seriously. And, and it's like, people be like, oh, that stupid thing. And they'd be all up in arms about it. Do you pray for him? I mean, that's the thing. We are a people who get so out of whack that we cease to understand God's grace. And some laughter in our lives indicates a sickness of our souls. It really does. And only tears can cure it. And that's what James is saying. Have we wept over our sin? Do we understand it? And then this leads into the next one, which is humble and exalt. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does the humbleness come from? It comes from grieving over our sin. We become humble, and the exaltation then comes from the understanding of the grace and the gospel of God's great salvation over us. Kent Hughes writes this, The gravity of grace will always channel the rivers of divine favor to the lowly. That's the humble. The humble is the lowly. We are not meant to wait until someone else humbles us. Life tends to do that to us all the time anyway. But we learn to live humble lives because we recognize our sin and God's grace. And if you want to talk about a Christian duty, our duty is to understand the grace of God. We must take inventory of our lives and see our weaknesses and then bow in total submission to God where we yield our total being and our dreams and our futures and everything to Him. Humble, exalt. Because when we get in that place and we understand how we've committed adultery, how we have run from God, and we understand His grace that brings us back to Him, that's when we see the grace has already been poured out. And that is when God puts the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and he pours on more grace, and he will lift you up. We don't lift up ourselves. He is the one who does it. Where is our focus? And so James gets to these verses, and I'm going to read them. And if you didn't have all this in context, you might misunderstand what he's saying here. So you get to verse 11, and he says this. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So he's very nice. He goes back to brothers again. 
The one who speaks evil against her brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So in context of what he's been talking about, the argumentation of James is now those who have experienced grace, those who have experienced mercy, those who have mourned, they've humbled in their lives, they understand that God gives us more and more grace because we need it, are now not experts on the weaknesses of their brothers, but they're experts on the strengths of their brothers. They rejoice at what God is doing. One writer says this, they rejoice in the God-blessing movement of the Holy Spirit in their lives. With our mouths and with our lives, we stop tearing one another down, and we start to build one another up. Why? Because of the gospel. Because we understand the grace that we have been given. So here's a couple questions to round this out. First one is this. Do you understand why we need more grace? Do you understand what that grace actually means to us? Are you more prone to seeing the shortcomings in others or the strengths in others? Are you more prone to seeing where everyone around you needs to grow up? Or are you more prone to see where God is actually doing a work in someone's life right now, even if it's slow? Even if it's slow, because sometimes when we only see where someone needs to grow up or their shortcomings, that's not discernment. That is judgment. It is condemnation. When we feel the need to tear other people down, it's a litmus test that we haven't really experienced the grace that we say that we know. We might have a concept of it, but we haven't really experienced it. And this is why James says you walk through these things. You resist and come near, wash, purify, grieve, change, humble, exalt, more grace more grace that is given to us. James is arguing that where we walk in true wisdom and we understand the grace of God, a whole lot of quarrels and fights and judgments are going to begin to dissipate. It's not that we won't have them, that they're not going to be there ever, but we are those who are quick to seek forgiveness, who maybe even absorb some of the things that most people in the world would not, because that is wisdom from above. We can overlook slights and anger because we have experienced grace. And we can even absorb some sins that people have committed against us because our sins were absorbed by Christ himself on the cross. And I've said this a couple weeks ago, but can you imagine what type of people and community of faith we would be if we were experts on how God is growing one another in grace? If that's how we spoke, if our speech revolved around that, if your social media, Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat stories all revolved around that, if our conversations just kept coming back to the grace of God and what He is doing. And this will only come when we experience the grace of the gospel itself. And so really, you got to start in a place of asking, have you experienced the grace of the gospel? Do you understand it? Do you understand that you are someone who has run from God in your life, and yet He loved you enough to call you to Himself, to draw you to Him? All the sins that we have committed against Christ in our lives, our rebellion, our running from Him, was taken care of by Christ at the place of the cross. This is why we come to communion every week as a reminder of what Christ did to rescue us. Communion is a reminder of grace, of God's grace, of God's hope given to us that we as a people could never save ourselves. We can't make our relationship right with God by doing all the right things because we continually commit spiritual adultery against God. We make promises and then run the other direction all the time. And this is why he gives more grace. And that grace comes because of the cross. And this is why we always go back to it. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they do, Take some time today. Pray. Ask God to lead you in a place of understanding grace and come and take communion. You take that cup and you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. 
and you drink the grape juice as a reminder of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because we as a people, our blood is tainted. We cannot pay for our own sin no matter how hard and how long we tried. And this is why Christ does it for us. He comes and rescues us and he draws us to himself by his mercy and by his grace. This is what he does. And when you take communion today, it's meant to be a reminder of that. That he gave himself to bring us to himself because we could not do it on our own. And if you need prayer today, if you are in a place in your life where you don't understand the grace of God or you're always, your first response is, is judgment and condemnation of others and you want that to maybe change a bit, well, why not today seek someone out and pray with them and talk with them? You can talk to Sarah at the Welcome Center. We actually have people signed up specifically here today to pray with you and she will connect you with one of them. If you are going through your life, you don't understand what it means to grieve over your sin. You think you don't have any in your life. We'd love to talk to you about that and talk to you about the great grace of who Christ is and what he has done in the reality and truth of the gospel. Because until we understand our position in God's grace, we're going to continue the same direction we always have. And we want to be a people who are full of mercy because God sends us into this world as a reminder of his mercy and grace, how he has saved us. So we live in the world in ways that speak of the good news of the gospel and God's saving grace. If you guys would like to give, there's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us, giving us to be part of our worship. We do not pass the plate at element. It's always a response to God's generosity to us first. And that's how we respond in generosity towards him. And I would encourage you to grab some sermon notes, hang out with some friends or family, or if you've got a gospel community, getting together this week, and take those questions with one another. And talk about what it really means to grieve and change and to understand to wash and purify, humble, exalt, and maybe how God has done that in your own life. Speak of the great joy of how God is moving and changing every single one of us because of his grace. And sometimes, yes, that's slow. But we celebrate even the slow change that God is doing. And sometimes it's fast. And we celebrate the fast change when God does that as well. But it all goes back to worshiping Him because He is the one that brings and works the change. Because God is good. He has always been good to us. And He is graceful to every single one of us. Why? Because we need it. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would take and teach us what it means to be a people who have been rescued and saved by you, that we would understand the reality of what the gospel brings, that we would understand the gospel itself, that you have given your righteousness to us in place of our sin, that you have given us life in the place of our death, that you have died in our stead and risen to new life to bring us to yourself. And I ask that we would then begin to understand the results of what the gospel actually brings which is changed lives, which is grace upon grace upon grace. And we would be a people who would be simply become undone, that we'd understand that there is no shame in being broken before you, that there is no shame in acknowledging our sin before you, because you have sought us even in the midst of our sin and our sorrow in order to bring us to yourself. Have us begin to be people who understand that is the good thing, that you are jealous over us, that you want us to live in your joy and your rescue. 
that we would live in humility because we understand that you have drawn us to yourself in grace. And that our lives in this world would then begin to reflect that grace. So that you would first and foremost be glorified. But then we as a people would begin to live in the joy that you bring. Teach us to live out our great salvation in grace. Understanding that we have hope in a world that desperately needs hope. So have us speak of that and be your people in what we say and what we do because it honors who you are. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So Mark closes the curtains. I'm going to ask you guys to take a couple moments and kind of think through these ideas of God, show me what it means to be someone who understands that I have run from you. I have committed spiritual adultery against you. And yet you have come and offered me more grace. Think about the times when you're like the lady in Charles Spurgeon's story who is like, oh, I'm never tempted to be proud. Think about this. How often are you tempted to be humble? Because we are way more tempted to be proud in our lives. And humility seems to come only in our brokenness. And this is why when we recognize our sin, that's grace. This is why James says the trials we go through are grace. They really are. And so ask God to show you where your trials and your pain that you have gone through is grace. That would lead you to humility. And you would see how he is leading to exalt you in his grace. So that you would step out into this world and be a people who represent who he is and his name in ways that glorify him and can begin to reassert God's joy in this world by how we live it out in our lives. Ask God to lead you in ways to surrender yourself today to him. And then come and take communion. And then sing a couple songs with us about our surrender to who Christ is and the grace that we have received. And let us be a joyous people who live outside of these walls, the great salvation that we have been given in grace, that we would live like we believe what we really say we believe.